welcome to the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, and thanks for joining us today as we dive into the scriptures and talk about what God's Word has to say to us today. This is the first episode of our new interview series, and I'm really excited about our guest today. This week, we began our Walk Through the Bible series, where starting in Genesis, we are going through the narrative of scripture to try to understand the story of the Bible as a whole. Each week, we'll be going through passages of scripture, and then we'll bring on a guest to help us delve deeper into the meaning of the text. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas Sheck, Associate Professor of Theology at Ave Maria University. Dr. Sheck is a revert to Roman Catholicism and a graduate of my alma mater, the Moody Bible Institute. He holds a BA from Moody in Bible and Theology, a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and a PhD in Religion, Classics, and Philosophy from the University of Iowa. Dr. Sheck is a prolific translator of previously untranslated writings of the Church Fathers and has translated works such as St. Jerome's Commentary on Ezekiel, Origen's Commentary on Romans, and many others. In this episode, Dr. Sheck and I discuss his journey back to the Catholic Church, his time as a Baptist pastor, his translation work, and his insight on Genesis 1 through 3. If you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a review and share this with any friends or family you think would like to learn more about the scriptures. I really do appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments, like us on Facebook, and I'll be sure to engage with any questions you might have. With that, let's get into it with Dr. Thomas Sheck. I wanted to get your story because you, you, you also a Moody grad. What brought you to the Catholic faith? What brought you to Moody Bible Institute to begin with? Um, I, I grew up Catholic. Okay. Uh, I grew up in uh, Bettendorf, Iowa, the youngest of eight children. Hmm. Um, I wasn't uh, really well catechized. Hmm. And uh, I was confirmed in high school <clears throat> But my uh, my parents had kind of neglected our our uh, our training, and uh, so the the requirements to be to be confirmed were were very minimal. I think just a couple meetings with the priest, and uh, we made a, my brother and I uh, made our made our con- first confession, <laughs> and uh, so unfortunately. Um, I just, I didn't have a solid catechesis uh, growing up. I think my, uh, my older sisters uh, uh, went to Catholic school for, for many years, um, but then my parents just kind of reached the point where they couldn't afford that any longer. So um, my whole education was public, yeah. uh, my brother. And um, so I was really just, much more of a child of American culture than, than I was of the Catholic church. Um, and then I, uh, I went off to college <clears throat> to Iowa state university in uh, 1982. And I moved into a dorm room with uh, two uh, Southern Baptist uh, Christian guys born again and, you know, Christians. Right. And, um, I remember, you know, walking into the dorm room and they, they had their Bibles open on their desks. <laughs> and 
I, they were kind of talking with each other. And I remember saying something like, um, are you guys pretty religious? <laughs> uh, and then one of them responded, well, no, it's not that we're religious, but we've both committed our lives to Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. something like that. One of those guys was actually the son of a Jewish convert. His father was, was Jewish, and he converted to, uh, to Christianity, to the, to the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of hearing that story uh, kind of impacted me. Uh-huh. I hadn't really thought about, you know, such a thing, a, the con- conversion of somebody to Christianity. And um, anyway, over the, over the course of that, that fall semester, I gradually became friends uh, with these, these two guys. At, at first, I kind of, you know, persecuted them, so to speak, and, and mocked them and called them Bible beaters and Jesus freaks. You know, I kind of hung out with my my friends from Bettendorf who who were going to Iowa State, and uh, but over time, uh, I I became friends with these guys, and uh, we had many arguments and discussions about the Bible, and um, so I slowly started to transform, and then um, Christmas break came. And I started to, to pray uh, more <clears throat> and just tried to start to talk to God more. And, um, and then second semester came of my freshman year, and I switched into a different dorm room <clears throat> in, a, in a different location on the campus. And I, it was the first night of the second semester. And the, you know, the, the, the guys were partying and I didn't know any of these guys. And, and I, I just felt kind of uncomfortable and lonely. Mm. And I went to my room uh, and there was my Bible uh, sitting in a box, you know, which I, I had a Bible, but I had never read it. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'll give this a try. And uh, so I started to read the gospel of Matthew and um, my, my heart, uh, transformed that night. Um, I re- I can remember the night, uh, and I remember reading uh, Matthew four nineteen, where Jesus said, "Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." And uh, it it spoke to my heart, and I I committed my life to Christ uh, that night, and um, and then I I just started to devour the Bible, and just read it, and. Um, I remember a, a few weeks later, I ran into one of my old roommates on campus, and I told him that I was reading the Bible, and I, that I really loved it, and he, he was really encouraged to hear that. And then uh, at one point, they invited me to, to, uh, to this parachurch ministry that was active at Iowa State. It was, when I was there, it was called the Baptist Student Union. I think they, I think they changed their name. Um, but I started to attend these uh, Thursday night uh, meetings and uh, I just really felt comfortable and uh, drawn to this, this group of young people. They were singing, you know, and playing guitar and singing praise choruses and things like this. And uh, I just, I really felt comfortable with that group. And um, so I gradually kind of made a transition 
from the Catholic Church uh, into the Baptist Church. And um, what, I, what I did at first was uh, I went to Catholic Mass on Saturday evenings, and then I would go to Baptist Church on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Um, but eventually, eventually, I just uh, transitioned out of the uh, out of the Catholic Church, and I was actually baptized, rebaptized in the in the Baptist Church. Um, so yeah, I have had a, a very dramatic uh, conversion experience, and I I embrace it. I mean, to yeah. this day, I'm, I'm grateful for yeah. for that experience. I I regret that. You know that I took I took certain steps that were not necessary. You know, right. such as baptized again. Yeah. But um, but I I don't uh, repudiate you know that right. conversion experience. Uh, it, it's kind of a fulcrum point point uh, for my whole life. Yeah. And, uh, I'm grateful for it. Um, it. It sort of makes me think of like I I I grew up in uh, my parents are are devout evangelicals. And, and they, they raised me, uh, part of my love for scripture comes from them. Uh, but I do remember having, having a moment of, of, of like, making my faith my own for the first time. And, and that was largely surrounding the, the reading of the scriptures. Um, and, and as I look back on, on my journey to the Catholic faith, and, and as I hear you talk about yours, I just like reminded that everybody is on a spiritual journey and, and God directs all of those in the way he, in the way he will. And, and so, yes, you're, you might've taken more steps to get to the Catholic faith and, and the fullness of truth to where, where you are now, but who's to say that that wasn't part of the journey that God had laid out for you and the plan that he had, he had set out for you um, that he knew. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it was, one of many experiences now I would say that I've had um, where, where I felt God speaking to me and um, wanting me to, to make changes in my life. And, uh, but you know, it, it, it's an important one. Uh, I don't, think you can, you know, say that it's totally essential that everybody have the same experience or something like that because we're all, we're all unique, but, but I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for that experience. And um, I, uh, I guess the language that I felt comfortable using was, you know, that I committed my life to Christ uh, on that night yeah. and, and uh, made a decision to, to follow him. Yeah. And, um, so what brought you then from there to the Moody Bible Institute? Okay. Um, yeah. My conversion was, was quite radical and, uh, I became very active in, uh, evangelizing mm -hmm. on campus. And, um, so I, I went to Iowa state for one more year. So two full years. And in that second year, I was, I was very active with, uh, with that church. Um, and then eventually I met, uh, I met people who told me about Moody Bible Institute. Yeah. Uh, I met a pastor who, uh, who thought I should consider uh, going there. Yeah. And uh, he took me on a visit to, the, to Moody uh, during one break, I think. 
And I, I just really felt called that that's what God wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. So I transferred there um, in, let's see, 1984. And I transferred from Iowa State to, to Moody in downtown Chicago. And I went there for three years. And then I, I came out of it with a, uh, a BA in Bible theology. Um, and uh, let's see, I was active in different evangelical churches in Chicago. Um, so I started out, you know, with the Southern Baptist Church in Iowa and then um, in Chicago, I got involved in the Covenant Church, uh, Evangelical Free Church. Yeah. And, um, and after, after three years at Moody, after completing my BA, then I, I went straight to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Right up the street, Deerfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out, out in Deerfield. Um, and I, I completed a master's degree uh, from there in 1989. And uh, so they were, you know, more broadly evangelical. Yeah. Moody, Moody, you know, has kind of that fundamentalist uh, presence. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, the pre-tribulation rapture yeah. ideas. And uh, the um, pre-millennial dispensationalists run. Yes. At, at Moody Bible Institute. Yeah. And I, I was never really comfortable with, with those teachings. Um, uh but I tried to kind of uh, migrate to, to teachers who were there who, who were, you know, more learned and uh, more broadly uh, evangelical, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I value uh, some of those teachers uh, to the present day. Yeah. So when did you start studying Catholicism or restudying Catholicism, I guess? Um, when did it become, when did you open that option up to you? To okay. Um, so I think it was my, my last uh, semester at Trinity Divinity School. Um, I, had, I had been in school for seven and a half straight years. And I didn't know what, what God wanted me to do uh, with my life. Um, I was interested in a possibly uh, studying uh, New Testament studies at the PhD level. But um, I think during that final year of seminary, I started to kind of burn out Mm. from academics. Yeah. It's a long time to be in school. I had, I had another kind of call experience uh, that, that occurred when I was praying Mm. and uh, I felt the Lord Jesus uh, calling me uh, to become a missionary. Mm. And um, that, you know, was affected, I think, a lot by all the exposure to missions that took place when I was at Moody. Yeah. And that's something that I greatly appreciate about, uh, you know, evangelical Christianity is, is the, the urgency of missions. And, and they try to impress this yeah. upon, upon students. And... Um, Anyway, uh, if you if you recall from the mission conferences at Wait, Moody, I don't know if they have have continued this tradition. Founders Week and Missions Conference every year. Yeah, <laughs> and they give you a World Evangelism Decision Card. I I don't recall that. 
Yeah. Okay, so we, and so you're they give you, you this card and, and you're supposed to I indicate, you know, what your commitment is as far as missions goes. Yeah. And uh, I had always uh, checked off the box that I did not know if God was calling me to be a, a missionary. <laughs> but, but after this, this call experience that I had, I dug that card out of my files. <laughs> I wrote on it. And I, I still carry it in my wallet to this day. Really? Um, I wrote on it, um, let's see if I can dig it out of my wallet here. Um, on something like on, on August something, 1989, I, Tom Sheck, felt the call of God on my life to become a missionary to Germany. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I signed wow. it. <laughs> uh, to the to the glory of the crucified <laughs> and uh and so i had this experience uh of feeling feeling that this is what god wanted me to do yeah. so um i oh here it is yeah this in my wallet um and uh I said, uh, on August 30th, 1989, I, Tom Sheck, sensed the call of God on my life to spread the gospel in Western Europe. I shall not fail to obey this call by the grace of God to the glory of the crucified. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I made an appointment with a professor of missions mm. at uh, Trinity. And I told him about this experience that I had had. And this guy he had been a missionary in Germany and uh, so he kind of gave me some advice. He, he advised me to try to get ministry experience yeah. on the side, you know, before, before doing that. And uh, he kind of grilled me uh, on, on the uh, vocation experience that I had had. And he said, you're going to need that call, you know, that, that, conviction that this is what God wants you to do. You're going to need that uh, when you get over there because it's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And it was, I was not married at the time. And um, so anyway, that was probably my, my second most important uh, kind of conversion type experience um, that has impacted my life. Um, but at that point I began to uh, pursue missions uh, but first of all, by getting involved in, in ministry. Right. And so um, after Trinity, I went down to, uh, to Kansas and I became a youth pastor. Yeah. I, connected up, I connected up with a pastor that I had known from Bettendorf. He was an evangelical free church pastor and they were in need of a youth pastor. And so I wanted to get ministry experience and then also build a base of financial support for for missions yeah and that's where i met my wife uh she was working as a nurse uh, right. in the uh overland park area and so uh so i was involved in in youth ministry and then met my wife and then uh after after we got married we uh, moved up to iowa and we did about three more years of pastoral ministry and we completed our fundraising uh 
to go to Germany as missionaries with the Evangelical Free Church. How was your German? So we were we were in Germany from 1994 to 1997. Wow. And uh my oldest son was born in Leipzig. Okay. He, he is now a, uh, a seminarian at the Josephina. Oh, cool. In Ohio. Um, so we had three, uh, three difficult years in Germany. Uh, we, my wife had two children right away uh, um, after, after arriving there. And those were very traumatic experiences. Um, and, uh, she ended up uh, developing a uh, clinical depression. Mm. And so we, we were not able to continue, uh, as missionaries in Germany, we had to, to come back to the States. Mm. And, um, so I guess that's kind of another phase of my, of my conversion story. Um, after, after everything kind of crashed to the ground and all that I had worked for, um, just fell apart. Um, you know, I really, I really felt like God had abandoned me. And, uh, I went through a, a period of great difficulty and doubt with faith. Um, and I mean, I'm not proud of this and I, I wouldn't wish anybody, you know, to have such experience, but at first it felt like God had abandoned me, <laughs> but then I, as I thought through everything, I started to have doubts about God mm. and even about his existence. Mm. And uh, so I went through a very, um, a very dark uh, period uh, spiritually. Uh, this would be in 1997, 98. Um, now I didn't. I didn't stop going to church. I didn't stop reading the Bible. I continued, you know, actively in ministry uh, in in Nebraska, where we moved uh, from Germany. But in my mind, uh, I was struggling terribly with my faith, and um, that was actually uh, one of the things that that led me to uh, to really miss uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, um, because the Catholic Church provides so much help for for its people, um, mm -hmm. and f such as you know, for example, a confession, <laughs> you know, and uh, being able to confess these things to a priest and receive receive spiritual counsel, yeah. it's really been amazing. Um, I have never had a priest tell me or condemn me for, uh, for the doubts that I've, that I've expressed or confessed. Um, you know, usually they say, they'll say things like, you know, Tom, this is actually a very normal thing uh, for, for a person to go through. And, um, but to me, it was very humiliating because I felt like, you know, I'm supposed to be this, <laughs> this superstar Christian who never has any struggles or doubts. And here, I'm not even sure that I know that God exists. And um, so it was a very humbling experience. And I, I would never have 
imagined that I, I could, you know, experience su such thoughts, such yeah. struggles, but it, it's, it, it was very real. And um, so now it's more of a, you know, one day at a time, uh, trying to persevere uh, till the end of my pilgrimage. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the difficulties began, it was interesting. I was 33 years old. Oh. Right at the end of Jesus' life, right? Yeah. And I, I just uh, wondered about everything. Mm. And I remember saying back then, um, if I were to take a, have to take a lie detector test, and if I were asked, uh. is there God, that I don't think I would have passed. Uh. So it was, it was really bad. Um, but gradually, uh, things got better. And uh, I kind of, I re-entered the Catholic Church, kind of like a patient checking into a hospital, <laughs> you know, <laughs> please help me. I, I need your help. And, and uh, so I, I really missed a lot of things about the Catholic Church. Uh, and I, I, during my whole time as a Protestant, uh, I, I, I missed those things, uh, such as the, uh, the liturgy and the liturgical calendar, you know, kind of having a rhythm to your life, to your year, uh, Advent, uh, Lent, right. you know, yeah. the, the saint uh, feast days and so forth. And uh, it just kind of builds a rhythm to your life. And yeah. uh, I really missed those things uh, when I was a Protestant. Um, so, wow, well, that's, that's, that's a pretty amazing story. Um, that's, and I think there's so much that we could unpack there. Um, uh, but I want to talk about like some of your scholarly work now. So, uh, okay. you've been doing a lot, you, you, your focus is on translation of church fathers, correct? Yes. Uh, why that? It's, it, it's, it's, I, I, I don't mean that, uh, in, in hostility, but what, what brought you to translation, especially because when you think of like the, the, the big hits in terms of Christian bestsellers are never St. Jerome's commentary on <laughs> the minor prophets, something like that. Um, but I, I'm sure you found, and I, I know that those things are massively useful, um, to those who, who delve into it. So what brought you to, to translation work in the church fathers? Okay. Um, right before I went over to Germany. So I'd say a couple, a, a few years before that I discovered the church fathers mm. ones that I can see sitting on the behind you on your <laughs> shelf. <laughs> yes. That, that exact series, uh, yeah. the, the anti-Nicene uh, fathers, mm. And so as I was, uh, I was working as a, pas as a pastor, and uh, I was married at this time, and then we were on weekends uh, often traveling to, uh, to raise funds for, the, for our mission ambitions. But I was constantly studying the church fathers, and I was, I was transfixed <laughs> by, by their writings. And I started with the earliest ones, you know, the apostolic fathers, um, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, St. Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. I remember reading uh, Tertullian's work against Marcion. Mm. 
Mm. And uh, laughing my head off at his preface and the way he, he mocks Marcian, you know, and, uh, and I, I just felt uh, drawn to those writers. They were, first of all, they were great writers, you know, and uh, in, in possession of, of eloquence, but they were also very scriptural. I mean, they knew the Bible. What I was finding was um, I was coming to understand scripture better by studying their right, but by studying the church fathers, mm-hmm. you know, like Tertullian, you know, he would, he would explain some parable of Jesus very insightfully. Yeah. I thought, wow, these yeah. guys were not idiots. You know, they, they knew scripture. They, they understood how, you know, how to interpret it. And then they also called attention to um, theological themes that that were not accepted by 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 uh, evangelical Protestants. Uh, right. For example, um, once saved, always saved. Right. Yeah. Okay. That was a that was a big doctrine at, at Moody Bible Institute. You know that you cannot lose your salvation if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord. Um, that you cannot lose that, that makes absolutely no sense to, to any church father, you know, because <laughs> we have a free will. Yeah. If we have a free will, why, why can't we throw it away? Why can't we say no to God? And it uh, just simply makes no sense. And, and so that was perfectly clear to me uh, that, that that doctrine had never been a part of the church, uh, you know, Irenaeus, for example, when he describes some of those Gnostic uh, groups, you know, some of them basically taught like a once saved, always saved type of doctrine. And they, that gave them license to sin, you know, all they want. I mean, I know the evangelicals don't, don't say that, but, but the first half of it, they say, (laughs) you know, that you cannot lose your salvation. And so, Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is my, my theology started to become more and more Catholic, mm-hmm. even though I was still a, a, an evangelical Protestant. Uh-huh. And um, mm-hmm. so when I would teach, teach things like in Sunday school or, or in sermons, you know, I would try to be as kind of Catholic as I could be. Um, and sometimes, you know, that led to difficulties uh, because uh, – you know, some of these people are kind of so prejudiced against, you know, Catholic ideas. For example, that Mary had no other children except for Jesus, you know. Um, sometimes I remember trying to, trying to explain that the, the Gospels actually aren't very clear as to who these brothers and sisters were. And there was simply no receptivity to that in, in these circles. And so, but, you know, on, 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 other, on other doctrines, uh, there was, you know, a fair amount of receptivity to, to a more Catholic version of, yeah. of things. Um, so anyway, how did I start to translate? Yeah. Uh, I went to Germany with an interest in the church fathers. And so the first thing was we entered language school. So I was studying German uh, full time. And um, there was a huge library right down the street from our apartment called Die Deutsche Bibliothek, the German library. 
and it was the University Library in Leipzig. And I, I looked in their card catalog, I looked up origin. Yeah. Okay, origines. <laughs> I saw a reference to a German translation of origins commentary on Romans. Huh. Okay. I had never heard uh, that, that origin had written a commentary on Romans. But here was a German translation of it. And so I acquired that volume and it was bilingual. It had, um, <clears throat> it had the Latin text on, the, on one page and then a German translation on the other. And I thought, this would be a great work for me to read because oh. I want to learn German. Yeah. At, that time, at that time, I didn't know much Latin at all. Uh, but I was I was learning German in order to become a missionary, an effective missionary. So I read uh, the German translation hmm. commentary, and uh, I actually started to translate the German into English uh. as, as a way of building my German vocabulary. Right. And as I I chipped away at this project, um, I I contacted one of my professors from Trinity. Uh, D.A. Carson. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. one of your professors. Yeah. yeah. I asked him, uh, would it be possible for me to publish an English translation of Origins Commentary on Romans translated from German? <laughs> uh, Carson, Carson said, no, you would have to translate the original language. And so what happened was, I, as I learned German well, I, what I noticed is I could understand the Latin because, because the languages have a lot of similarities. German is a romantic language, isn't it? Well, no, German, it's a different language family, but it still has things like uh, three genders for nouns. Okay. Okay. Uh, Latin has that. Yep. And uh, case endings. Yep. Uh, you know, um, so nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, and so forth. German has that. So even though it's a different language family, the experience of learning German well somehow made a light go on with, for me to learn Latin. And I, but I noticed I could look at a, the Latin sentence and I could basically understand it, except I just needed to look the words up. You right. Know? Yes. It was, it was a real turning point for me. You know, I guess I had heard that if you learn a second language well, the third language comes easier. Huh. That's, that was my experience, um, that I learned German quite well, and all of a sudden, Latin started to come easier to me. Hmm. Not to mention the fact that I, if, I want, if I wanted to translate the Latin, I could, I could look at the German yeah. for help. It would, it would give you the vocab. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was the beginning of my, my career as a translator. And so I switched from translating the German to translating the Latin. And I worked on that project uh, for five years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a very lengthy commentary on Romans, you know, that Origen wrote. And I, but I got it completed. And so... Um, it, so I, I didn't go to Germany expecting that I would become a really translator. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of happened and it developed. And then I, I've continued with, you know, 
that calling of translating um, and just move from one work to the next uh, each year. And so, um, yeah, uh, that's good. And you've done, uh, uh, I believe it was Jerome's commentary on the Minor Prophets? On Matthew. Matthew, okay. Well, the, the first one was on Matthew. Okay. Um, and then I, I did uh, Origins homilies on Ezekiel, okay. which Jer Jerome himself had translated into okay. Latin. Okay. Uh, let's see, I did Origins uh, homilies on Numbers, Huh. which Rufinus had translated into huh. Latin. And then I switched to uh, Jerome's commentaries on the Old Testament prophets. Okay. So for about, you know, 10 years since I've been down here in Florida, uh, that's kind of been my project. Okay. Uh, I just completed uh, two new translations. Okay. Um, which I'm quite excited about. Uh, Julian of Eclanum wrote commentaries on Job, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Huh. That's being published with InterVarsity Press. Okay, wow, awesome. There. And, then, uh, and then another one uh, coming out later uh, with Paulus Press, uh, Pelagius's commentaries on the 13 epistles of Paul. Really, wow. So, um, I've worked with InterVarsity Press uh, several times, and uh, they seem to like me, you know, the, so I, I get along well with the evangelicals. <laughs> um, and, uh, but. Well, that's, that's really cool. This commentary by Julian, I'm, I'm quite excited. It's, it's the first commentary on the book of Job huh. that, to survive. It's, huh. it's 150 years older than Gregory the Great's uh, exposition of Job. Huh, wow. Way back, and uh, are, had are never these, been translated before. Yeah, are these, so that are, is previously untranslated. Are, are most of these works previously untranslated, at least in Yes, English? yes. Wow. All, the, all of the translations that I have done have never been translated into English. Wow, you, I, I guess that's how I That's how I choose the works. Right. So I guess in my mind, I tend to think all of these things have been translated, but there are no. many, many that have not. No, that series that's behind you, yeah. the, the Nicene, uh, Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, they translated the major writings of the Church Fathers, but not including their commentaries. Huh. Because the commentaries were too long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they, they did the major treatises, you know, of each writer. But commentaries, with just a couple of exceptions, wow. and so I didn't. I didn't realize that either. Uh, when I when I first received my uh, thirty-eight volumes of yeah, of you think writing, this is it? I, this is the Church Fathers. Yeah, and yeah. actually, it's not. Like for wow. Saint Jerome, uh, Saint Jerome wrote, as you know, massive commentaries on the Old Testament, and they had never been translated before. Huh. So this is one of one of the one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is uh, like how does the average person engage with the church fathers with you know it's technical language it's hard to understand but you're saying that even before that there is a a totally untapped library of biblical commentary from the church fathers that is largely inaccessible to the the average person because we don't read Latin or or Greek. Yes. 
um, that's what I feel is, is my calling, you know? And, um, I, 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 I did origin to begin with. And then, uh, St. Jerome's commentary on Matthew, which is, you know, that's in the fathers of the church series. And that's quite an accessible, uh, commentary. I think okay. a, a Catholic layperson could read that and be edified by it. I use it, uh, as a required book for my scripture course. Yeah. And students read Jerome's commentary; they like it. And, yeah. uh, so, um, so I, I think the commentaries are quite accessible. Um, and it it was unfortunate that they had not been translated. Well, it's pretty cool that you're working to fix that problem. So, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get them all. We'll, you'll get them all done, and, and then we'll be able to we'll be able to read them all. Um. So uh, shifting now, I, I want to talk about the, the book of Genesis in particular, um, and even more specifically, the beginning of the book of Genesis. Um, and, and, and I know your translation work is maybe not focused on the book of Genesis, or maybe has, you can fill that in. But what are some insights that you've gained from reading the Church Fathers on the book of Genesis? Okay. Um. I was always kind of nervous about uh, teaching Genesis when I first began to teach because I didn't quite know how to approach the creation uh, stories, you know, um, how literal, you know, do we interpret. Uh, I, I figured that would come up. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I came across uh, right after my reversion to the Catholic church, um, I, I started to make myself a, a pupil of, of Joseph Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, he became Pope Benedict the 16th, yep. but in one of, in one of his interviews that was published called salt of the earth, mm. um, he was asked about the theory of evolution. Yeah. And is this compatible with, with a Catholic approach to, to the Bible. And here's what, he, here's what he said in response. He said, part of faith is also the patience of time. The theme you have just mentioned, Darwin, creation, the theory of evolution is the subject of a dialogue that is not yet finished. And with our present means is probably also impossible to settle at the moment. Not that the problem of the six days is a particularly urgent issue between faith and modern scientific research into the origin of the world, for it is obvious, even in the Bible, that this is a theological framework and is not intended simply to recount the history of creation. In the Old Testament itself, there are other accounts of creation. In the book of Job and in the wisdom literature, we have creation narratives that make it clear that even then, believers themselves did not think that the creation account was, so to speak, a photographic depiction of the process of creation. It only seeks to convey a glimpse of the essential truth, namely, that the world comes from the power of God and is his creation. How the processes actually occurred is a wholly different question which even the Bible itself leaves wide open. Hmm. 
Yeah. That's really good. He, he said that, and he, he, he re- referred to Job, and I knew what he was referring to, Job chapter 38. Yes. When God where were, you? where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Yes. Yeah. And <clears throat> what he was saying is the, the, the Old Testament itself uh, contains depictions of God creating the universe, but there's a variety of images that are used in those depictions. And not, not one of those is intended to be, I like the way he put that, a photographic depiction of right. the creation. But these are images that are being used to indicate that God has brought this universe into being. Mm. And so what I do in approaching Genesis uh, with my students in the first week what I do, I compile all of the various uh, descriptions of creation in the Old Testament, and they read them together. So huh. Genesis chapter 1, Job chapter 38, Psalm 104, a few verses from Isaiah, uh, let's see, chapter 43, I think, um, passage from Jeremiah. I could, I could send you my notes. If yeah, you're I'm writing it down right now. I'm like, that sounds like an awesome assignment. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think even in, even, even in the first two chapters of Genesis, we have two creation accounts. Like yeah. Genesis two differs a little bit in its account of creation than Genesis one. So how could, yeah. how could they be photographic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I guess my point there is, huh avoid reading Genesis chapter one as a literal six day account, (laughs) six literal days uh, that it's really more, more of a, a, a poem almost, but written in the form of prose, um, a poem of creation. Um, And, uh, one of the things I try to do in that first week of, of, of the scripture course is uh, there's a, I came across this YouTube video, the Apollo eight uh, mission from like 1968 or something. I think Apollo eight was the first time that, that we had circled the moon without landing on it, but circling it and coming back and then seeing the earth from the perspective of the moon. Yeah. And uh, the astronauts on that flight, you can find this on YouTube. It's a Apollo 8 Christmas uh, story or something like that. And um, they read Genesis chapter 1 uh, yeah. as they were circling the moon. And as the earth appeared, this beautiful blue planet floating out there with the clouds and everything. And they simply read Genesis chapter 1. And it, it was extremely impactful, mm. uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was, was without form and void and darkness. And it, it, it somehow lost nothing. The fact that, <clears throat> um, you know, that perspective had never been seen before yeah. of the earth. And yet you could still read Genesis one as if it were describing what's right before your eyes and I think that shows the the power of of that narr- that narrative. Mm. 
um, that it's almost transcultural, you know, yeah. uh, and it, um, now how did the, how did the ancient Hebrews understand the universe? Okay. Well, they would not have understood it the same way we do. Right. Um, modern science is constantly revising its understanding of like the planets, for example, you know, with these planetary, uh, probes that have been sent out just within the last 15 years or so. And so it's not really fair to uh, kind of punish the Old Testament writers because they didn't have a modern understanding of all these things. We're constantly uh, learning. But I I think the, uh, the main point is that those narratives in Scripture in Genesis 1 they were not intended uh, to be, uh, you know, geological accounts or biological accounts, but they're theological. Right. And so I try to emphasize that uh, at at the beginning of of the scripture course. Now I still take you know a very high view of of Genesis in terms of its historicity. Yeah. I, tr- I I treat. Adam and Eve as real human beings who once lived, yeah. you know, um, Noah, um, I, I trust, the, I trust those records that the ancient Jewish people kept, but I, but I don't think that Genesis one was intended uh, to be a, a scientific depiction of, of creation. Huh. That, uh, that, that's, that's really insightful. I tend to, to, to think that, um, much of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is at the very least non-literal um, where it, it, it's, it's historical in a sense, but uh, not in the complete sense of like reading a history textbook is. Um, and I think after you get past the tower of Babel and get to the, once we f- zero in on a specific narrative of, of uh, in a specific person in, in the, the Toledoth of, of Abraham, then you have, you have a much more intentionally historical document. Um, yes. So that, that's generally where I fall. And one of the, I, I tell my students holding a completely historical view of the entirety of Genesis to say it is all 100% literal is an acceptable position. Um, it's not one that I hold, but it is an acceptable one. So, um, but I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, what, what do you think uh, is different about the way we read the first part of Genesis than is the, like the way the church fathers read the, the, the beginning of Genesis? Besides like the non-literal, maybe that goes to a broader way of how did the church fathers read the Bible in general? And how is that different than the way we, we read it today typically? Yeah, um... I, I'm not really all that familiar with uh, the writings of the church fathers on the book of Genesis. Um, sure. the, the, one, the one writer that I am familiar with would be Origen, who wrote uh, homilies on Genesis. Hmm. Um, one of those homilies is on Genesis 22, hmm. uh, God tested Abraham. Right. And uh, I do have my students read uh, that homily because it is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
he talks about the uh, the extent of the test that Abraham was was faced with. It's difficult for me to even speak about it. You know, take your your son, your only son, you know Isaac, and offer him. You know, yeah. the origin just kind of walks step by step through that narrative. And what kind of of a test this would have been for Abraham? Um, it's as if God is magnifying the pain, you know, by by naming the son, and he's your only son. Right? Yeah. He. It's all of those things are re-emphasized by God. Take your yes. son, your only son, the one whom you love. Yes, whom you love. He keeps adding these phrases. And Origen had wrote this beautiful homily on this. I could. I could. I have a PDF of that that I could send you. Yes. But he, he really engages the emotions of, of, of the reader or the hearer of this homily. And um, that's something that I really love about the church fathers mm. is that they, they speak to the heart of the believer. And um, so it's almost as if whatever they write, <laughs> I think uh, Cardinal Ratzinger talks about this as well, how he, he just found a vitality mm. in the writings of the church fathers that he says that he did not find that in like some of the scholastic right. writers, you know, he found them to be very dry, but, but the church fathers spoke to his heart. And um, so um, anyway, that's one sample of, of a church father on Genesis that I try to use every year in teaching scripture. But yeah, as far as the interpretation of Genesis, um, I'm not, or, or I mean of the creation story there, I'm not all that familiar with uh, some of the things that have been written. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that, that's fine. I, I, um, I, I was, it's fascinating to hear like the, that the church fathers write with vitality. I think of like, like, uh, early 20th century biblical scholarship that was just very modernist and very uh, like the, it brought an approach to the Bible that was dead. It was, it was not one of, of wonder at the word of God. And, and I think too much, especially in academia, we accept that. And, and instead the church fathers, they approached the Bible with incredible vitality. I like that a lot. Um, so with the creation narrative, then what I'll just focus on like a couple of, of things that are in the garden, get your perspective on them. Uh, what do we make of the trees? What do we make of the trees of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, 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 the tree of life are, are setting aside the question of whether or not they are literal trees. Why are they there? What do they symbolize? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that God was testing humanity as he created them. And our, our role in this world is that this world is intended to be a test that, that God wants us to endure and experience. Um, one of the things that I, I try to do in teaching Genesis is, uh, 
teaching Genesis within the, the context of the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books yes. of, of scripture. And um, so I had a, an Old Testament uh, teacher from Trinity, uh, John Salehammer was his name. And uh, he, re- he wrote a book called The Pentateuch as Narrative, mm. which has, has really uh, helped me in understanding the, uh, the themes of the Pentateuch. But one of the things he shows is that the language that God uses in dealing with Adam and Eve in the garden is, is echoed and repeated when God gives the law to Israel through Moses, mm. like in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so, like, if you compare Genesis 2, 15 through 17, um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Okay, well, we know what happened. Adam and Eve are seduced by evil, they break the covenant with God and curse and exile are the result. They are banished. It's interesting to see that, you know, how were they punished? They had to go into exile. So I think the author is already foreshadowing, you know, the, the exile of Israel uh, from the, from the promised land. But if you, if you skip up then to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Verses 15 through 18, uh, God speaks to the nation of Israel, and he says, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and ordinances, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land which you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I think the author is intentionally recalling the language that God used in Eden And what he's saying, I think, is that the law is a gift to Israel from God with the same intention that he had when he gave the command to Adam and Eve. Uh Um, But he he wants friendship with us. He wants fellowship and life. Uh He wants us to walk with him. And... um, so I just I think it's beautiful theologically how the author has has returned to the theme with which he began the Pentateuch. He returns to it at the end, and you can see it. It's like a thread running through the entire five books, you know, with the, the language with Enoch. Yeah. You know, Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. Uh, with Noah, with Abraham walking with God, Jacob. Um, But God wants us to have life uh, through, through obedience to his, to his word. 
And um, so I really think that the, the Pentateuch is a very um, sophisticated uh, theological work, very beautifully composed. Um, and if you can see these threads, uh, you know, you come away really admiring the, the theological unity of, of this work. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't like to get bogged down in like the hyper uh, critical theories, like JEDP theory, <laughs> you know, and things like that. I, I just, I think it's the wrong way to approach uh, these writings. So approaching the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch as a, as a collected unit is, is what you would say, like when you are reading through numbers in the back of your mind should be the book of Genesis. And, and yes. by, when you, when you're, when you're reading the book of Genesis, you should be thinking about what's happening. I mean, I think of even, even further on past the Pentateuch, I think of uh, something like in, in, in the book of, of Samuel when, when David, for instance, is victorious in, in battle and it says they, he, they have rest in the land or the book of judges that, well, that is used a bunch. What does that refer to? It's this Edenic vision of the promised land as a place of rest because what, what does God do on the, on the, on the seventh day? He rests. Um, yes. And I also think with the, the command of, of uh, uh, God to Adam to keep until the garden. Um, and I, I, I believe, I don't know the, the, my Hebrew is terrible, but once you get to Leviticus and the, and the commands of the priests is one of, uh, I think most translators translate it differently, but it's the same Hebrew word to like guard and protect or something like that. Yes. It, it, the once we get to Leviticus, it's hearkening right back to Genesis. Yes. What what other insights do you have from these passages? I love that's that's so cool. I I never connected with Deuteronomy thirty. Yeah. Um, for well, for each for each book there, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Uh, you can you can trace these threads um, running through it. Um, I have material in my notes like that show how like Balaam in Numbers 24, you know, this prophet from Moab, um, he's, he's kind of depicted as like a Pharaoh type of figure. Uh. Um, but in spite of his opposition, uh, God blesses the nation, you know? And so the, the, the theme of God's blessing, um, Another important one, I think, is uh, <clears throat> Genesis 3.15. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Proto-Evangelium, where uh, God says, uh, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the, the prophecy that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Um, and yet 
he would be bruised. He would be crushed in his heel. <clears throat> um, I think ultimately, you know, that's a, a prophecy that was fulfilled on the cross. You know, when Jesus was crucified, he was the son of the woman, you know, Mary. Um, but you can trace the language that is used in that passage through the Old Testament. Um, so I, uh, even in, even in uh, Balaam's oracle in Numbers 24, uh, he echoes the language there about crushing the head <clears throat> uh, with the same, the same verb that's used in the Hebrew. Um, so let's see here. Uh, it's Numbers 24, 17. <clears throat> I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So I think, I think that's a prophecy, you know, of this coming messianic figure. Um, a, a scepter is, is a king's staff. But the interesting thing is this, this violent language that is used, he shall crush the forehead of Moab. And so I guess <clears throat> what I try to show the students is that, yes, uh, there are prophecies of a coming Messiah, but the language that is used in some of these prophecies is, is very uh, militant, yeah. like militaristic type of language. And so you can kind of understand why the, the Jewish people were expecting more of a, a military figure, yeah. a, a King David or a Judas Maccabeus type of figure who would, um, you know, lead to political liberation. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that the, the prophecies are kind of ambiguous as far as, the type of deliverance yeah. coming and that it took the coming of Jesus to show us how, you know, these would be fulfilled in a spiritual way, yeah. literally crushing the heads of the enemies, right. but through the spiritual triumph over Satan, mm. the cross, mm. you know, and uh, so yeah, prophecy is, it's more of a, it's a complex uh, topic because there are different types of prophecies. Sometimes they are simply kind of types that occur that foreshadow, you know, things that are coming in the future. Uh, sometimes they are literal predictions right. of, you know, the city where he will be born and things like that. But they're not all the same types of, uh, of, of predictions. Right. And, but I, in, in, but Genesis three fifteen is, it, I think it's pretty clear that it is speaking about a coming Messiah. Um, or at least, at least once you've finished reading the Bible, it becomes really clear. <laughs> Maybe that's the better way to say yeah. it. Of, of if, if <laughs> you were to who had just read this for the first time, you might be like, what, what the heck does this mean? I, I don't know what that means. But once once we see the story of Jesus, and it's it fits perfectly within this within this uh, this prophecy in Genesis three fifteen. 
Um, and that's, and this is something I'd love to get your perspective on. And maybe you, you, have, you have some insight that you gained from the church fathers on this. This is one of the passages that I use because obviously we're talking about this at the beginning of the semester every year with our students. And it's one of the things I start out with and I tell my students, there's only one story in the Bible. The Bible only tells one story. It is a singular unit. And one of the ways we see that is from literally the very beginning of the scriptures, we are talking about Jesus. We were talking about Jesus Christ from, from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, what is your perspective on the narrative of scripture as a whole that we see like beginning now, uh, but it's obviously connected to these things that are happening thousands of years later in different places, written in different languages, different people, right? But still being one complete story. Yeah, um, I I try to uh, you know teach the Old Testament in such a way that we we come to a better understanding of why why the Jewish people uh, read it that they do and why they ex expected certain things um, that many passages. Uh, seem to seem to use the that type of language uh, um, I think a passage that is kind of decisive for for the Catholic understanding of uh, of Jesus Christ is the uh, the servant, uh, the servant song passages in the book of Isaiah where um, you know this suffering servant is depicted like Isaiah 52 and 53 where he um, he's exalted but the exaltation takes place through this terrible suffering that he experiences yeah and um, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter and he's marred beyond the appearance of a human being and um, you know I try to read read those uh, those chapters out loud in class and people, the students are usually like, is this from the gospels or, you know, where, where's this coming from? And, um, so I, I think that Isaiah 53 is a, is a key passage and somehow <clears throat> that's what shaped um, Jesus' own self-understanding for, for his mission. And it's it's hard to even think about this, but you know that he would he would redeem us by by dying on the cross. You know, it's like, wow, how could how could that be? You know, um, but it's it's really the heart of the, of the Catholic faith, uh, the, the suffering the suffering of of Christ, the passion. You know, that's the source of all grace. <laughs> And um, so, um, once you know, once that was revealed to us, it's like we have no more time for, you know, a political military type of type of understanding of of salvation. It's uh, it, it was a spiritual uh, salvation that was given to us. Um, but anyway. Uh, 
those are a few thoughts that I have on that. I, you know, that picture of the suffering, the suffering servant, I think that doesn't really become clear until, you know, like Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, you don't really get that type of picture from the early books of, of the Old Testament. What do you think are some takeaways? And I don't know how much time you have. I don't want, I don't want to, to take up your time. You let me know if, if things uh, if run. I totally understand. Um, uh, what are some takeaways from the sin of Adam and Eve? What, they, they ate an apple. What is, what is so terrible about this? Well, um, they failed the test. <laughs> uh, you know, um, they failed the test. They disobeyed. Um, and they, they brought alienation into this world. Um, I, I do believe, you know, that, that there are indications that they repented of what they had done. And um, the, it says that the Lord provided them uh, skins to cover their nakedness. And I think that, that uh, you know, kind of foreshadows uh, the, the sacrificial system and uh, covering, uh, atoning for guilt through, through the shedding of blood. Um, and, uh, I think they were, they were restored, uh, to fellowship, but they still had to suffer the punishment of what they did. And they were banished, uh, from the garden. Um, <clears throat> one interesting thing that's noted is that, uh, when he drives them out of the garden of Eden, he, uh, he posts a, uh, cherubim, uh, this angelic figure to guard the way back so that they can't get back in there. And uh, those, those angelic figures were placed over the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. And, um, and they were in the, uh, the Ark was in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the, um, the blood was sprinkled by the high priest on the, on the mercy seat which was the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it had these two cherubim figures covering it in pure gold. And so that's where the blood was, was sprinkled. Um, and so again, it's, it seems to be indicating that, <clears throat> that the, the whole temple, the gift of, of sacrifice, the, the, the gift of the law was intended to restore Israel to fellowship with God, to, fel to friendship with God. It, the book of Exodus, for example, is constantly uh, echoing the language of Genesis when it's describing the, uh, the law given to Israel. Um, and so uh, I try to, uh, to bring out those connections, <clears throat> um, I guess, as a way of, of doing justice to the Old Testament on its own terms. Yeah. Um, also recognizing the, the forward-looking aspect that there were alongside, you know, however, however wonderful the law was as a gift from God and intended uh, to establish friendship with humanity, it still was not the answer. It was, it was provisional. It was, it was not intended to be permanent. Right. Uh, 
was it was restricted to a single nation whereas god wanted his salvation to be given to all families of the earth you know genesis 12 um <clears throat> so i i tried to um you know treat the old testament um on a on its own terms as much as possible uh but without without overlooking the very important theme of the promise, the promise of the coming, you know, redeemer. So would you say that, I mean, if we begin with, with man and God literally walking together in the garden of Eden and, and that, that walking with God there is, is lost through sin. And it's, it's from the connection you made to the cherubim, uh, that are on the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, that it is that those kind of symbolize that it's only it's only through this sacrificial system that Israel can walk with God again, and then that expands in the the new covenant to the door is open for all to walk with God in communion with the Holy Spirit. Yes, yeah, that. Um... I, I I try to take a positive view, you know, of the law that it was a good it was a good thing it was a gift from God um, to Israel, and a but it but it wasn't intended to be the permanent uh, state and means of governing God's relationship with with humanity. Yeah, it was it was temporary, but it was still very good and and. Uh, and it was a gift. Um, so, um, one other connection that I try to bring out uh, to uh, to the cherubim and the mercy seat. You know, the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where once a year the high priest sprinkled the blood uh, on the Day of Atonement. Yeah. Uh, Saint Paul in Romans three twenty five. He says that God put Jesus Christ forward. Well, it's translated expiation by his blood in the uh, RSV translation. But the Greek there is hilasterion, which is, that's the word for the mercy seat. So this is Romans 3.25. Um, God put Jesus Christ forward as the mercy seat. Huh. That was the place where the blood was sprinkled, namely on the cross. So, so uh, it, the fulfillment of of that sacrifice was was through Christ, through His crucifixion, and it's it's explicit in the Greek. Uh, the connection is very clear. Uh, Hilasterion. I think the Hebrew for that is kaporeth, <clears throat> and uh, it's it's the word for to describe the lid of the ark of the covenant that had those cherubim figures engraved on there and so i think that that shows us how paul interpreted uh the cross you know as basically the fulfillment of the uh the sprinkling of the blood on the day of atonement so we have the connection from that paul makes from 
the the cross of Christ being the mercy seat uh, of uh, the, being the new mercy seat, essentially. So he's making the connection from the cross to uh, Leviticus, right? Or I guess it would just be uh, the ending of the book of Exodus when they're describing the construction of the tabernacle. And the, that, that passage in Exodus is connected to Genesis 3, where the cherubim guards Eden and does not allow for the... Yes. Like Jesus opens that door uh, to communion with God. Yes. And um, I think I think Israel, you know, had... They had access to God's fellowship, God's friendship through through the gift of the law of Moses. But, but they still had a, a forward-looking expectation that God was going to bring about a, a greater deliverance for them. Um, and then ultimately, uh, Christ came and kind of cleared away the mist <laughs> and, and uh, showed us through his mission um, how God was ultimately going to bring us back to to the Garden of Eden, so to speak, and um, I mean, we still we we still have a future-looking aspect of our faith. We're still waiting for Christ to return, so it's not like we're 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 in heaven now. But um, but these are these are beautiful connections to bring out, and I I think that um, they're very valid uh, connections if you if you trace the language. Absolutely. Uh, man, this was great. I, I'm really glad we were, we were able to, to get some time to talk. And thank you so much for setting aside time uh, from your schedule to sit down and, and do this. Um, I really appreciate it. You're um, very welcome. I'm, hap I'm happy to be in contact with you. Uh, thank you for, uh, for contacting me. And anytime you, know, you want to do this again, you're welcome to greet your students for me. And, uh, so, and I'm really excited about uh, the ministry that you can offer the Catholic Church with your love for Scripture. It is it is so desperately needed. And uh, so, you know, that's the thing about the Church Fathers is uh, you read the Church Fathers, these Catholic, you know, saints, and boy, I mean, they knew Scripture by heart. It's 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 embarrassing to to read their writings, to, to notice basically how they had Scripture memorized it, it makes you ashamed of, of your own laziness. <laughs> well, Dr. Sheck, thank you. You have a good day, and I'll be in contact. Thanks for listening this week to the Bible Readers Podcast. It's been great having you with us. Next week, we'll be discussing Genesis 4 and 5. Episodes are available on Mondays and Thursdays. And a big thank you to Dr. Thomas Sheck. If you want to learn more about his work, check the show notes where you'll find all the relevant links to his awesome translation work. If you liked this episode, give us a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of these great discussions. And I will see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast. Mm -hmm.